I am Brendan Slocum, musician, educator, and author of the upcoming novel, The Violin Conspiracy. I'm here to tell you how music can save your life. Each episode, I talk with someone whose life was also changed by music. Since I'm a classically trained musician, many of my guests might come from that world too. But fair warning, I also rock out to Outkast and Lenny Kravitz and everything in between. So no matter what kind of music you listen to or play, you're in for an interesting, inspiring, and lively conversation. My guest today for our season one finale is the one and only Victor Wooten, a five-time Grammy winner, Vic has hit the worldwide scene in 1990 as a founding member of the supergroup Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. Victor has also become widely known for his Grammy-nominated solo recordings and tours. Among other things, my homie Vic is a husband, a father, a teacher, a published author, a magician, and an acrobat. He's won every major award given to a bass guitarist, including being voted Bassist of the Year in Bass Players Magazine Reader's Poll three times, the only person to win it more than once. In 2011, Rolling Stone Magazine voted Victor one of the top 10 bassists of all time. I am really happy to share this conversation with my new homie, Victor Wooten. Mr. Victor Wooten. Yes, sir, Brendan. I would like to first thank you for giving us your time and sharing your time and talents with us. Thank you so very much. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm honored. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, you know what? I'm going to try my best not to be a fanboy and do this professionally. I'm going to try. No no promises, but I'm going to try. I'll do the same. I'm, <laughs> I, <laughs> I looked up the things that you're doing. You're doing wonderful things, and I appreciate that. Wow. Thank you so much. I would like to welcome you, Mr. Victor Wooten, to How Music Can Save Your Life. I'm really happy that you're here and happy that you've agreed to talk to us today. Happy to be here. I'm honored. Thank you. Right, all right, all right. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and let you know that a couple of good friends of mine, David and Lonnie Bickley, saw you in concert a couple of months ago. And all they could talk about, we had them over to dinner, all they could talk about was how awesome your performance was and just what you could do. And I have a couple of questions from them. I told them that I would say, you know what, I'm interviewing Victor Wooten, so I I will uh, be happy to ask him those questions. But those come later in the show. So David and Lonnie, there's your shout out. I would like to ask, how is it that you got started doing everything that you do? And, And was there a particular person or event that inspired you? Yeah, there's a group of people, and it's my brothers mostly. That got me started in music. My way of looking at life came from my my fam, my parents and my brothers. My four older brothers are like four extra parents. I'm the youngest of five boys. My oldest brother Reggie is only eight years older than me. So there's Reggie on guitar, Roy drums, Rudy saxophone. They're all only a year apart from each other. So two years between the three of them. And then Joseph is uh, three years older than me, and then me. So when I was born, literally, when I was born, they needed a bass player. They already knew. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So did, did you parents. gravitate towards bass? No. Well, I mean, it's like saying, did you gravitate towards English? Ah, uh, okay. Your whole family yeah. was speaking English. You didn't know. You just did it. My whole family was playing music. Wow. So, you know, if, if anybody, if we, if we have an older sibling, male or female, when we're very young, we look up to them. Probably our whole lives. We look up to them. I had four older brothers. Before I even had a memory. My brothers were playing music and they'd be sitting around jamming, you know, and I'm, you know, one or two years old, but there would be a little toy plastic Mickey Mouse guitar. 
No one had to tell me that was for me. I knew. <laughs> so I would just, you know, bounce on my chair and, and jam with them. And by the time I was five, we were out gigging. From what I'm told, I was six. In the early 70s, when we were on a, a tour opening for Curtis Mayfield's Superfly tour. I tell that to people, and they're like, wow, you were five, you were six. The real story is my brother, Reggie. When I'm two years old and Reggie's showing me where to put my fingers, he's only 10. Oh, my gosh. So think about it, Brennan. How many 10-year-olds do you know that have the empathy, the foresight, the know-how, the care, the patience to teach their little brothers? Because he also taught Joseph how to play keyboards. Reggie's only five years older than Joseph. He taught Joseph keys and he taught me bass. So that in a few short years, a few very short years, we're out on a major tour. Wow, that's awesome. So early on in your career, we sounded like it you know, sounds like it started around five, five years old or so. What was one of the most significant challenges that you faced and, and how did you overcome it? The biggest challenge that I can remember is sitting in the room having to practice a song. Reggie's teaching me a song and I'm little. So some of these songs are hard. But Reggie's so encouraging. You know, he would always say, yeah, you know, it's hard now, but, you know, just sooner than you know it, it's going to be so easy. And you're going to look back on this day and laugh because you thought it was hard then, you know. But and this is a little kid talking to me. You know, in my in my mind, he's an adult. <laughs> right. He's only, you know, he's, he's, he's 12, he's 13, he's 15, telling me this stuff. But in many cases, Brendan, I'm sitting inside, you know, maybe we have a wedding we've got to play or a gig somewhere and I've got to learn this song for the bride or, or whatever. So I have to learn it. And Reggie's working with me. But I can look out the window and see my friends playing flag football or, you know, two-hand touch football or freeze tag in the yard. And I want to be out there, but I got to learn this hard song. <laughs> That's really the only challenges, the main challenges I can remember other than having to stay up late and I'm on stage literally sleepy, falling asleep, but I'm still the bass player. Incredible. So it sounds like your parents were really, was it that they were super supportively pushing you into this or was it they just let you do what was coming naturally? Our parents were concerned with who we were or who we are as people. Number one, number one, two, and three, that was it. Because they knew that if they could generate good people it wouldn't matter what we did with it because whatever we did would be being done by good people. That is amazing. That was their whole thing. My mom would always say, "You'll eat." well, I heard this as an adult. She would say, you'll either raise your kids or wish you had. Oh, wow. That is a wise woman. Wow. Once we found music, or I should say once my older brothers found music, our parents cultivated it. They made it possible. Dad never put the car in the garage. That was for our music equipment. You know, dad, hard worker. And he would come home from work. And, and, and right behind that wall, behind the TV, would be loud music playing from us and all the neighborhood kids. He never complained. You know, he would just turn the TV up all the way, watch <laughs> his TV, you know, drive us to gigs. He was our bodyguard. He was our chauffeur. He was everything. My dad, well, you can think about any any parents of color in the 30s and 40s, 50s, you know what they were going through. And for a lot of men back then, the only way out was to join the military. And that's what my dad did. And he fought in the Korean War, but he would come home and still couldn't drink out the water fountain and all that stuff. So we learned about all of that. How did that affect you? Well, 
it affects me more now because I understand what was going on. Back then, it's just what it was. Right. Kids deal with anything. We're being affected, but we don't know it. Right. We find out later how it affected us. So now I've got four kids and I realize, wow, I got to teach them some of the same stuff my dad had to teach us that I, I shouldn't have to teach. Back then, it's just what it was. So I wasn't so aware of what we might today call racism. I totally wasn't aware of being poor. Last Christmas, my brothers did a TV show. We recorded a special for a, a jazz club here in Nashville, Tennessee, named after our brother Rudy, who passed away in 2010. It's called Rudy's Jazz Room. Beautiful room here. All the clubs were closed. So we filmed a Christmas special at the club and, and broadcast it. And so we did a lot of talking during the show, talking about Rudy and our youth. And I learned something on that show about my youth. By today's standards, my mom would be considered strict. We never saw it that way. We just did what she said. I can remember being a little kid, not, not allowed to open the refrigerator without permission. I found out during this Christmas special last year or the year before, I can't remember when we did it, that in many cases, the only thing in the refrigerator, Brandon, would be a jar of water. Oh. That's how poor we were. But wow. I never knew. I never knew I was poor. We always had something to eat. Mom would always say God would always provide. She would say she, she didn't always eat, but her kids did. That's why we weren't allowed. Mom didn't want us to see how poor we were. I look back on my youth now and realize how affected I was by it. Back then, you're just growing up. You know, you're just doing what you do, being who you are. But there's so many influences, and it's those influences that make us who we are today. Very true. Very true. That is an amazing story. And things kids today take for granted. It's just like you have, you never would have made it back then. There's no way. Hey, try some of that stuff you do now. I know. I hear people, a lot of my friends, colleagues, complaining about the pandemic. You know, I'm not trying to go down that road on, with this conversation, but I look at what our parents went through and say, they'd be laughing at us if they were here today. <laughs> it's like, what? All you got to do is, if, if you go out, wear a mask. Other than that, just stay home and watch Netflix, complain about it on Facebook. That's what you call hard? Another a saying my mom always had, whenever we talk about how hard our day was, she said, you ain't never picked no cotton. Oh. Okay. <laughs> she yep. would put us in our place right away. Yeah, that stopped that real quick, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. We are definitely having first world problems right now. Mm-hmm. The first fact world that problems. we can complain about it in public with, with no fear of any retribution lets us know how good things are. We have work to do. It's not where it needs to be, but it's definitely not where it was. It would be a disgrace to our parents. No, I don't care what color you are. It would be a disgrace to our parents to sit here and say that things aren't any better than the way it was. Amen. But I would take this pandemic over the, the, the heavy Jim Crow era. My parents having crosses burned in their yard. My dad having to fight in a war when fighting on the ground was on the ground. I'll take this any day. There you go. Victor Wooten right there. What is your perception of the climate for Black musicians today? And do you feel like there is a divide between white musicians and non-white musicians. This country was built upon a divide. And I'm not trying to be negative or talk about racism, you know, and condemn white people. That's not my goal. I'm just talking about what it is. The country was founded upon a divide. And the bad thing about the country is we haven't reconciled that yet. We haven't admitted it. 
The government's never come out and made an apology to any people of color. And we're still young. As a country, we're an infant. And we're acting like an infant because we're not reconciling that. In the music also, watching India Ari's recent video about Spotify, they told her that the bulk of their money, I forget what percentage of their plays is coming from Black people's music. But then they're paying $100 million to a guy to call Black people the N-word over and over. And then they say, well, to, to censor this guy would be wrong. There's people getting censored every day for saying much less than that. Then they say, well, we pulled down 71 of his shows. You do something 71 times, that's more than a habit. That's who you are. And you're going to support that when it's our music. They said, this is not me saying, they said it's our music that is basically sustaining, that's my word, sustaining Spotify. So there's definitely a divide. Like right now, Biden, Joe Biden, and I'm not Democrat, Republican, I just like you or I don't. But what's happening right now is Joe Biden is saying, I'm going to nominate a black woman for whatever this high thing is. And people are criticizing. That's reverse racism. Here's the truth. If there's a black woman that's qualified for that job, she is much better than any man. Okay. You want to go a little deeper? Well, the thing is, you got to realize what that woman had to do to get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's the, that's the real thing I'm talking about. For us to consider them equal, they ain't equal. You're right. You're right. If you take a white person and a black person qualified for the job, you have to consider what it took for that black person to get there, for what that Latino to get there, for what that female, now add being female on top of that. And you're going to try to tell me who's more qualified and who's not? That is deep. That is really deep. Wow. So what, what do you think uh, a, a possible solution is? What, what, what do you think that we should be working towards? How do, you, how do you think we should do that? My dad was really good at letting us boys know that not all, I'm just going to say it, not all white people were bad. Now, as, a, as a, a child of color, you have to learn things that people who don't have the same pigment in the skin, they don't have to learn. They can't even conceive. I've had friends of mine, you know, I was, I was out with a friend one day and he was helping me with this music camp that I had. We were going to be buying bells of hay right, for archery at our camp. And we went to the hay place and the front door was closed, locked, nobody was there. He said, well, let's just walk around back. And I'm like, I ain't walking around back. <laughs> nobody shooting me, you know. And he was like, you know what? I never even thought of that. He's, you know, a white guy, great guy though, very conscious. He's like, man, I, ne I never thought like that. I'd have to grow up that way. There's things that are just different. I'm sure there's things that, you know, non people of color have to go through that that we don't think about. Everybody has a struggle. If you're in a neighborhood and there's a house on fire, that's the house you take care of. You can't go in that neighborhood and say, well, all houses are equal. You got to take care of where the problem is. And this country was founded upon a problem that hasn't been taken care of yet. I'm glad I'm sitting down because, I mean, just <laughs> the, some of this, this, I see I'm flabbergasted just listening to you because this is amazing that you're saying these things. And People that look like us, we 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 know this. We know this, and we experience it all the time. And for for listeners that don't look like us, this is going to be the first time that they are hearing this perception of of what life is like. And I think it's very educational. It's very beneficial for people to you know get this perspective. It's hard to know unless you know. Yeah, there are so many things right now, like you know, people storming the Capitol. Truckers are blocking the streets in Canada right now. People of color, of all color, have protests 
their whole lives. They've tried everything, violent protests, peaceful protests, writing letters, voting. I was about to say, ain't nothing working. That's not true. It's working slowly. Yeah. But if it was thousands of people of color storming the Capitol, they would have shot first, asked questions later. If it was thousands upon thousands of truckers blocking the streets, they'd shoot first, ask questions later. But right now, we got to have a committee to decide whether we can investigate the January 6th (laughs) insurrection. Can we investigate this, right? If you commit a crime, Brandon, you're going to jail first. Mm -hmm. Then we might investigate. We're going to let you sit there for a little while. And then, you know, I'm going to go to lunch. You know, then we're going to see, we might investigate. Yeah. There's a difference. There is a difference. There is a difference. So even going back to your your music question, music for us, whether you and I know it or not at our age, it is inbred in our DNA that music saves our lives. 100%. I don't mean that lightly. Our ancestors without music would be dead. That was the one way they could work the fields. They could ride over on the boats. They could march from Virginia down to New Orleans in chains by singing. That's why they call it soul music. Soul. Because your soul is literally in it, and you can't hear it without feeling that. What's your absolute favorite thing about music? You provide entertainment for countless people, but what what does it do for you? Well, I can tell you what it does for me. It'd be hard to pick one as my favorite. Because if you pull anyone out, then be different. You know, but one of the things I love is that I can affect you with it. Okay, music's powerful. I steal this from my brother Reggie. If a policeman says everybody put their hands in the air, people might do it. Right? If a politician says everybody put your hands in the air, people might do it. But if a musician says everybody put your hands in the air, everybody's going to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no force needed. That's the power of a musician. It's a power that no one else on the planet has. I want to be really good at that. Did you just say you want to be? I want to be really good at that. Okay, you yes. can be a, a tad bit more. You can be more modest than that. I am good at that. I know that's what you really wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that I can affect people in a way that you don't even have to understand what I mean. In other words, I can be angry. I can be happy, sad. But I play, you, can ex- you accept it however you choose. That's powerful. So you're doing this. Not only you get something out of it, you get the fact that you affect other people. Oh, that's the biggest part. It's bigger than what I get out of it. Wow. Right? That is a gift. If it was only for me, I'd sit at home and only play. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. there are musicians who do that. And more power to them. But I get to go out and affect people. More than that, you will pay your hard-earned money to allow me to do it. (laughs) Think about it. If somebody comes to see you play, they give up everything for you. We walk into the venue. I'm going to hear you play violin, right? Yeah. I'm going to come in to hear you play at that moment when I walk through that door, even before. I don't care about the skin color of the person next to me. I don't care who he or she voted for. I don't care who or she or he or she paid praise to. When you play that violin, I turn to the stranger next to me and we high five. And all, <laughs> Right. That's the power we have. Wow. That's the power we have. When you put it that way, that's just, that's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's an immense amount of power that you have. It is immense. Absolutely. And Reggie, my brother Reggie calls it feminine power. Why is that? It doesn't take force. You respond to it at your own will. When you're washing dishes and the song comes on and you're singing along, don't even know it. 
No one forced you to do that. When you walk into the club where you're playing, Brendan, and, and I all of a sudden love my neighbor, <laughs> I didn't decide, I didn't think about it. That's the power you have. So that's why I say I want to be really good at that power. Because like Stan Lee and Spider-Man say, with power come responsibility. And we see people abusing that responsibility. I think we should be responsible with this power. Victor, I'm going to call you Victor like we are old friends. You're my we homie are. now. Dude, I, 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 we could just talk for hours and hours and hours about these philosophies and experiences. This is incredible. I'm hearing you. I'm gaining so much just by listening to you and listening to your stories. And, and a lot of what you say, I relate to 100%. I feel exactly what you're talking about. I'm lucky because I'm the youngest of five boys who I heard this stuff from. And my parents, who I even heard more from. To me, this is, this is where it really comes from, is, is that upbringing that I was just lucky enough to have been born into. And I want to share it with people. That's the, the main reason I like teaching right now is because I was lucky enough to hear things when I was young that the world needs to hear. What I really respect about you is that you're not afraid to let people know this, even though it may be slightly difficult or uncomfortable to hear. The reason I speak louder now, especially since around 2010, 2012, is my mom would have said it. My mom would tell you like it is. Mm -hmm. She would tell you what you needed to hear, what she at least felt you needed to hear. And when she passed away, I gave myself permission and the courage to take on that quality. Dr. Martin Luther King said it. Jesus said the same thing. The Dalai Lama says the same stuff. None of this are things we don't know. I've never met a person who smokes who doesn't know smoking is not good for them. So knowledge is not enough. People say knowledge is power. Knowledge ain't power until you give it power. So these aren't things that we don't know, but we got to live them. Knowing is not enough. It takes courage to live what you know. It takes even more courage to speak it publicly. And my mom would speak it publicly. Wow. Okay. So my IQ just went up like five points. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get to your my, my questions from my friends, David and Lonnie Bickley. Lonnie's question is, in, in what location, context, and company do you find the most joy when playing? This may sound like I'm just trying to be clever, but I make it the place that I'm playing in right then, now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I'm playing for a, a you know concert with you, I need to treat that as the best ever because really that's the only one that exists. The other ones are somewhere. Yeah. In I, the ether, ether someplace. Yeah. In the ether somewhere. Yeah. I can't even prove that they happen. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be playing with you wishing I was somewhere else. And a quick example is when my brother Rudy died in 2010 and I got a phone call, mm -hmm. my brother Reggie called me and said, Rudy passed. Almost immediately, Brendan, my mind went back to the last two gigs we played because they weren't that long before that. And they were in Nashville. One was at the Summer Nam show at a little banquet, not a big gig. The other one was at a, a some kind of a Nam, which is the music convention, mm -hmm. a Nam, a small thing at a, at a small club called Exit Inn, the Exit Inn in Nashville, Tennessee. It's like a little rock club, probably sticky beer on the floor. It wasn't the best places, but we played it as if it was. And it hit me every time my brothers play, it's on. It's like it might be the last time because it was. Wow. Wow. Right? So since that day, I've been asking students, when's your last gig going to be? And they say, what? 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 When's that? I say, not a trick question. Tell me, when's your last gig going to be? They're like, I don't know. And I say, right. 
So what am I waiting for? Jeez. Right? Why okay. am I going to play a gig that's not my favorite right at that moment? So I say that honestly. Now, I do have some memories of gigs that pop up, that, you know, that, that speak louder than others. But the, the gig I'm playing, I treat as the best ever. I that really is do. amazing. I'll tell this one quickly. I was, we did a, with Baylor Fleck and the Flecktones, we did what's called a state department tour, meaning it's sort of like a USO tour. But our government gave us high military ranking, and we traveled to seven Asian countries as musical ambassadors. So we played for, like, the ambassador to Mongolia and stuff like that. But we also played for public, too. But we played somewhere way back in a hill tribe in either Thailand or, or Indonesia for this tribe that had never had a live band come to see them. And Bela Fleck was very smart. Every country we, we went to, we learned their country songs, songs that the whole country would know. So we're playing our Flectones music. And, the, you know, these, these people, they're all in robes. The women's faces are covered and stuff. You know, they're being polite. But when we went into their song, all 2,000 of them jumped up, dancing, singing along. And, just, and it hit me right there as I'm playing. At this moment, there is no us and them. There is no audience listening to a band. There is no Arabic speaking to English or whatever. There is no religion. It was just one group of people existing together inside music, I guess you call it. That is incredible. It was like, this is what music is for right here. Oh, that is genius. I mean, I think I got a chill just listening to that. Oh, I get a chill thinking about it. It was amazing. It was really amazing. And that's a that's a, a gig I hope I never forget. But I, I still won't call that my favorite. Your favorite? You haven't played your favorite yet. Everyone's my favorite. Everyone is your favorite. All right. Yeah. I love it. Love it. Here's my uh, friend David's question. What do you think music can teach us about communication with one another? Music's the, one of the best ways to teach about communication. Or, or really, music's a great way to teach about how to live life, period. There have been studies done, many studies, and, and the studies show that if children learn or children who do get into music at a very young age learn how to exist in society better hmm. than people who don't. Because mu- playing music is all about communication. Very true. So you learn how to listen. You learn how to rest. In language, like right now, you're not talking, but you're paying attention to me. I'm somewhere around across the country, but you're still looking at me. Music teaches us that, teaches us how to listen, how to play. Music is a, is a medium where we know that the band or the ensemble is better when all the instruments are different. Think yeah. about it. The band is better when all the instruments are different. Okay, We could have a band of 30 flute players, and it would sound good. But if they had a violin, a bass player, maybe some drums or percussion, it's going to even sound better. So in music, we recognize our differences and then celebrate them. If you're the violinist, I want you to be a violinist. I don't say, hey, be like more, be Brendan, be more like the drummer. Be more <laughs> like this group. No, you be you. And we're going to make sure that we have a place for your voice. You know, I, I, I never really thought about it like that. I've never thought about it like that. Brendan, we should be teaching it like that. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely we right. We teach music as if it's on a page or in an instrument, and it's not. No more than speaking is in your mouth. You speak a language, you don't speak mouth. So we play music. We don't play an instrument, but we teach you to play an instrument. Nobody pays to hear your instrument. They pay to hear you. Think about that, though, really. That is really profound. Really. 
But that's why there can be so many violin players and they all sound different. Same instrument, same notes. Everybody has a different sound because it's you that's coming through. That's what's touching people, not the instrument. I love that. And music, better than, in my opinion, better than anything else, teaches that. Now, we don't teach it as teachers, but that's what music is offering you. It's showing you how the world really is when we get rid of all this fake stuff. <laughs> okay, you're writing a book about this, right? Well, I need this wisdom in my life. I tell you what, a lot of it is in two books that I have out. One called The Music Lesson, came out in 2008. The other one just came out a year ago, February. It's the sequel to The Music Lesson. It's called The Spirit of Music. I put a lot of these thoughts in there, and I attribute it to a teacher named Michael who's teaching a young student who's like me. And the teacher's telling me a lot of this stuff. But I write that book as fiction, right? So I don't have to, like, you know, I I don't have to... uh, What's the word? Uh, defend it. Right. Uh, you know, I can just say, oh, that's fiction. You know, like Star Wars or whatever. You know, nobody has to argue over whether Yoda's real. We can just watch the movie and enjoy it if we want. But if you really listen to all those lessons, may the force be with you. This is powerful stuff. So I wanted a book like that. It's fiction, but the lessons are real. But the next book, again, I'm going to be quoting my mom and a few of my dad's quotes in a real way, like a little small coffee table book that people can hear some of these things. But a lot of a lot of the, I don't know what you want to call them, moral lessons, but a different way of looking at music are in these two books. That is amazing. And I think the world is so much better because of it. And I'm probably going on Amazon today and getting both those books. I appreciate that. Hey, you you got it. I will say this too. Um, they're, they're both on audio. They're both audio books. And I know I'm biased, but they're really good. I have to say it. Because I did the audiobooks in the way I never heard it done before, where every character is a different voice. So I was told early on in my writing, I'd never written a book before, but I had a friend tell me, if you picture real people when you're writing your characters, they will take on more real reality. So I found people that embodied what I was trying to, to write about. So I have, a, I have a character named Uncle Clyde that's in both books. He's an older black gentleman, just wisdom, and he plays music. And I chose a great bass player named Chuck Rainey as uh, the inspiration. Chuck Rainey played on uh, a lot of Aretha Franklin's stuff, Rocksteady. He played on uh, Sanford and Son theme, Dancing Machine with the with uh, uh, Jackson, you know, Five. Jackson Five. So much stuff. He was the original bass player on What a Wonderful World with Louis Armstrong. And he's, he's in his early 80s, but he's still alive. And so he read the role of Uncle Clyde for me, right? In the first book, my character has a conversation with music and you hear us both talking to each other. And music says that she's dying, that she's sick. And music says, I have more intimate relationship with, with computers these days than I do with humans. And people don't feel me anymore. And she says, I'm dying. Which is the whole premise of the spirit of music. The spirit of music is dying. Mm-hmm. My goal as an author and a character in the book is to recruit people to help us save, save music. And I use a lot of real things that are going on. But, uh, but it's a fiction book. I'm going so far around, I was going to make a point. Oh, so my mom was the voice of music in the first book. My mom has since passed on. So in the second book, the voice of music is India Ari, one of my favorite singers. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of people, you know, you'll hear all these different voices. I score each, and this book, me, I had a friend help me. We score each chapter of the book with music. I talk a lot about nature and there's a red-shouldered hawk that shows up in both books. Whenever you hear that red-shouldered hawk in the audiobook, it's the hawk that lives in my yard. Whenever I hear him start singing, I run out and record him. 
the new book has a lot of downtown Nashville scenes. So my wife, during the pandemic, my wife and I went down to downtown Nashville for about two and a half hours, three hours, and just recorded sounds. And so you're hearing real sounds. You get a different experience if you listen to both books. Well, Amazon will get some more of my money today. That is awesome. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let me ask you, who who is your favorite composer, artist, favorite piece of music, favorite piece of art, and, and why is that? I like a lot. Uh, I love Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had to pick one band, if I had to pick one as, as my favorite, maybe, maybe Earth, Wind & Fire. Sly Stone, too, but Sly Stone is named after Sly Stone. So I think of him as the artist. It was a band. You knew who yeah. the members were. Sly and the Family Stone. But Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind & Fire, but also James Brown. James Brown. Because I realized what they were living through and staying positive. You're a shining star, no matter who you are, right? Reach your head to the sky. This is Earth, Wind & Fire singing all this positive stuff. Yeah. But James Brown would say, say it loud. I'm black <laughs> and I'm proud. We couldn't say that back, back in the 60s, 70s. But James Brown gave us permission. And so then you take Sly Stone. You know, I want to thank you for letting me be myself. You know, all these songs take, you know, his version of that. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very, very positive and they were job dropping gold mines for people of color to know and accept who you are when the rest of the world wouldn't. Right. My brother Roy in the third grade asked his teacher something about history. And her answer was, son, you don't have a history. Really? This is a real story. Third grade. This is what we're facing growing up. That's why I say for us to make it, we have to be so good. But there were these artists back there singing this stuff. Just give me some respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Right? Yeah, and a lot of us don't even know who wrote that song. It was written by a man. And he was singing it. Give me respect. Amazing. But Aretha made it popular. But, you know, these are powerful, powerful songs. And it, it amazes me and gives me hope that these people could live in that day and age, mm-hmm. for one, and be successful, but still not just be bitter. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not against these people at all, but they didn't have to come out and sing songs like F the Police or, or whatever. These songs came later when we started gaining some power. And I could say that without having to, you know, think I'm going to get lynched or whatever, you know, so you could see our power of not so much that we have power in life, but we, we've claimed our power. Yes. We know who we are, not just what we've been told and we can, and we can say it, you know? So I, I love those artists for that reason, but there's a whole bunch more black, white, uh, Latino, you know, a lot of, a lot of music from, from the Latin world. And then the whole crew down in New Orleans. It's like every era, every every era, you know, Ohio had all these bands with mm-hmm. Boosie and Ohio players. Oh, yeah. You know, this My mom has music. every one of them albums, every one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I haven't even mentioned the whole classical world because there, compo- there are composers of all different denominations and cultures writing great music. And I was lucky enough to be aware of some of that as a kid growing up, too. That is phenomenal. I just, okay. Yeah, wow. Thank you again. And this is the part of the show where you get to ask me anything you want. Okay. I get to ask you. All right. I want you to fill in the blank oh. with whatever word you want. I say music is, and you say life, life. Give me two more words. Everything beautiful. Okay. Uh, healing, right? Life, um, beautiful healing, everything. Yeah. We could keep going. 
Yeah, we got, yeah, definitely. And, and, but check it out. You didn't. Uh, your instrument's violin. You didn't say music's violin. Oh no no no. You didn't say music is scales. No. All the stuff they make us practice. Yeah. <laughs> stuff right? I need to be practicing more. Yeah. <laughs> right, but you need to be practicing life. Yes. You need to be practicing everything yeah. because that's what we want our audiences to hear. That's what we need to play. In many cases, we forget that as soon as we pick up our instrument. Now it becomes about technique, the right note, the scale, the mode, what key are we in? No one in the audience cares about any of that. <laughs> they want their life changed, right? They're escaping something, maybe. They want everything, right? If that's what music really is, and as soon as we put our instrument down, we know, right? When we get up to dance in the nightclub, we're not dancing to the key signature. <laughs> right something's making us move and it's invisible that's what we play and as a teacher i made a vow to my own self that that's what i'm teaching okay so i just had an addendum to my teaching philosophy now and i can attribute it to you that is amazing and i'm not quite sure why i was been so wrapped up around you know not experiencing that and and i'm going to share that philosophy with my students and everyone right. i come in contact with well thank you well but think about it think about it when we learn to talk do we learn nouns and verbs and all that stuff first or not is it all. more important to have something to say we never tell a child what to learn to work, say first if the child wants more milk they'll learn more milk first <laughs> if they want their mommy first they're going to learn mommy yeah we don't teach them and if they say mommy wrong, we don't say, hey, go practice. <laughs> right? It's funny when we talk the language, but it's so common when we think of music and we wonder why it's so hard. It's because we teach it and learn it in reverse. Rules first, play later. That's backwards. Oh, yeah. Right? You're right. You're absolutely so right. If we think about and most of us teachers never find out what the student's goal is in the first place. We're just teaching them what we think they need to know. But if we think about it, nobody wants to hear your skills. If I'm paying to hear you play, right? Don't play me no scales, right? You move me, you know what I mean? Yeah, that D major uh, scale is not going to do it. Exactly, <laughs> unless you put feel into it. Yeah, right. But those words you said, that's what music is. The rest are tools. Now, as a good teacher, we we need to teach the tools. But in too many cases, as a teacher, we mistake the tools for music. And then we teach the student to do the same. They weren't that way in the beginning. They came to you because they heard somebody play. They saw something and they got moved. And all of a sudden, now I got to be right. That's why most people who start quit. No fun anymore. Ooh. I'm not getting what I came in there with. And whether we can verbalize it as a child or not, we're coming in because of those words you just said. Life, everything, spirit, you know, that's what the child is feeling. Don't get me wrong. People hear me say this and they think I say don't practice or don't. The tools aren't important. They are important. But we learn to speak with our own voice. No one's ever told you to go find your own speaking voice. That only happens in music after we teach your own voice out of you. <laughs> That's true. That's very it's true. It's very true. Yeah. And then we tell you to go find it again. I'm like, well, yeah. why'd you teach it out of you? <laughs> but every person in life speaks with their own voice because that's how you started from birth, right? As parents, we learn your voice first and encourage that. You can say things wrong, Paschetti. Mommy, where's my blankie? <laughs> Guaranteed your mommy's going to say, here's your blankie. They're going to yeah. say it wrong too because they know what you mean, right? But in music, we have to teach you to do it right first. And being right is screwed up 
too many people. Ooh. Okay, Victor, you were my new homie. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if you knew. I just want to make sure that we're clear Absolutely. on that. Absolutely. Right. My manager sent me some stuff on you, and I was looking up, you know, looking at uh, the stuff she, she sent me, and I was like, okay, I like this guy already. Yeah. <laughs> my man, all right, all right, yes. all right. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough for spending your time and sharing your wisdom with us today. This has been an incredible experience, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And um, tell us right now where we can find you, what you have coming up. Absolutely. The best way to find out what I'm doing is my website, which is victorwooten.com. And Victor, V-I-C-T-O-R, Wooten, W-O-O-T-E-N victorwooten.com and that'll point you into all these different places that I have like the online store yeah I have you know different shirts there's books there some of the gear that I use you can find there but my touring schedule my workshop schedule I do a lot of workshops it's always there but I have other places too there's a site called the base vault it is a membership site I think for like two cups of coffee a year you can come and and my friend Steve Bailey and I uh, run that, and we do a lot of live events like this with pe- with the members of the vault. We were in there two nights ago. Just we have a few things that just say, "Ask us anything," and you know we do events like that. But I do a lot of instructional videos and post them in the vault. So that's a that's a place. I have a group that I've done with this my friend Steve Bailey. We're in our thirtieth year called Bass Extremes, and it's two bass players and a drummer. And on the recordings, we bring in a lot of other guest bass players. On a new record we have coming out, Marcus Miller, Ron Carter, Justin Chancellor from Tool, and Billy mm-hmm. Sheehan, Rock Guys, O'Till Burbridge. And I even have my, my banjo buddy, Bela Fleck, playing some bass banjo. So it's a fun record. So I'm always keeping busy. The most thing I've been doing over the last few years is, is taking time off, putting my bass down, <laughs> right? Because most people know me as a bass player, you know, but bass player is not who I am. That's what I do. You know, my kids don't care about that. You know, <laughs> this has given me a chance to be dad, mm-hmm. to be husband, to pet my dog, take out the garbage, <laughs> get under the sink, unclog the sink. You know, it's been fun to unpack my suitcase. So that's the main thing I've been doing lately is really taking care and nourishing who I am once the base is put down. Mm-hmm. And many of us during the pandemic lost sight of that because... Many of us musicians don't know who we are without our instrument. And that was number one on our parents' list is, who are you? Mom would say, what does the world need with just another good musician? She said, we have plenty. She said, what the world needs are good people. For me, because I couldn't do what I do all the time, this was a chance for me to work on who I am so that I bring who I am in a better fashion back to what I do. Words of wisdom from my new homie, Victor <laughs> from my mom. And we uh, and from Victor's mom, who's yeah. also now my mom. She is cool. <laughs> he is cool. This is my homie. Y'all hear it, right? Y'all heard yeah. him say it. He just dapped me up like virtually. That was That's really it. cool. That's Man, it. Victor, thank you so much for sharing your time and, and your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. I Brennan, can't thank you enough. Thank you, Brennan. You shared the same time, man. And that's the thing that we all have in common. Don't care, care how much money you make, how talented you are, or how poor you are, or what your job is. We all have the same amount of time. But what we do with it is key. And for you to take your time, spend it talking with me really means a lot to me. And I mean that sincerely. I appreciate it.
How Music Can Save Your Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Brendan Slocum, produced by Hannah Ray Leach, and mixed by Eric Coltnow. Special thanks to Jeff Kleinman and everyone at Anchor Books for their help with this podcast. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about me and my novel, The Violin Conspiracy, check out my website, brendanslocum.com. I'll see you next time. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.